first reading is from Psalm 23, so I'll just give you a moment to get there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me Uh, In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Our next reading is in the New Testament, um, in John uh, chapter 10, and we're starting at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father... And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this uh, sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Thanks, Laura. Well, good evening. That was pretty poor, but I'll, I'll take it. Thank you, everyone. That was good. Hello. Yeah, that'll do. Whatever. Hey, my name is Jono. It's nice to meet you if we haven't met. Um, man, that was the worst hello ever. Far out. That's all right. I'll get over it. Hey, um, uh, let me give you a bit of news about EV Grow, first of all. Uh, we did this series a couple of weeks ago, uh, seeking to uh, essentially, together as a church family, uh, work out how we can pledge to cover off on our mortgage bills uh, for the facilities we use here. Uh, and good news, uh, we're up to... As last I heard, we're up to 80% of what we need to see our loans serviced here for the next three years, 80% pledged over the next three years. Uh, So that is really good news. That's a great work of God, and I'm thankful for uh, God's work in us as we're generous to the work of the gospel here. That's really good. Um, I should flag as well, if you're someone who is intending to put in one of those pledge forms to talk about how you can contribute to that, if you're intending to do that and you haven't done that, please do, because it'll be very helpful. Uh, you might be someone who's been giving uh, to this EV growth thing for a whole bunch of years now, and you might just kind of want to roll over what you're already doing into this next season. If that's you, make sure you do put a pledge form in to tell us you're doing that, because they want to presume on people that um, 
th that you are doing that, so you need to tell us if that's the case. But anyway, that is really good news. I'm going to give thanks to God for that, uh, and I'm going to pray for our time in the Word. So let's do that now. Well, Father God, thank you for the generosity of your people. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, meet our needs, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, seeing this building loan serviced. Uh, Father, yeah, we thank you for the generosity of your people among us and we pray, please, that we would uh, see that 100% that we need for that. Uh, but Lord, thank you so much that we now have the privilege to turn to your word. I pray, Lord, that we would find great treasures here as we look at this psalm together. I pray that it would be a blessing to us. I pray that it would be for our joy and for your glory as well. Amen. Well, uh, YouTube is a strange place. If you spend enough time there, you've probably figured out it is a pretty odd place. There's lots of different types of odd videos on there. One phenomenon is the unboxing video. Who's watched an unboxing video before? That's good. You guys are a lot better than morning church. Good on you. Uh, yeah, the unboxing videos is the thing where a person essentially films themselves opening something they've bought. So they buy a piece of tech or whatever and they film themselves and like, here's what's in the box. There's a power cord and a remote and a stereo and it's a very good stereo. And they put it on YouTube and millions and millions of people watch these videos. It's unboxing the new iPhone 12. And when they did that, they were like, there's no power cord in here. What are you doing, Apple? And they said, it's for the environment. Unboxing this new drone, unboxing a PlayStation 5. I, I follow the NBA, I'm a fan. At the moment, there's no news in the NBA. It's the off-season. Uh, and so this week, breaking news, LeBron James unboxed his new Xbox Series X. That was a sports headline this week in my NBA app. Uh, that is a real thing. It's a strange concept, the unboxing video. It's like at family Christmas when you all sit around in a circle and you watch each other get presents and you open them up and you're like, you got socks. And they're like, I got socks. And you watch each other open presents. Um, it's a bit strange. I think the reason people like these videos, though, is they genuinely want to know like, what's included? What is actually in the box? If I was to buy this thing, whatever it is, what am I going to get what's included? Now, to put it really crassly, what about Christianity? What's in the box? What do you get? What do you think the average person on the street might say about that question? What do you get? I wonder what you would say about that question. Some rules to live by? I can lots of people would say, some positive thinking that's helpful, uh, some good religious experiences that are uplifting, maybe something to keep you busy in the community, do some good stuff. Maybe at a really basic level, lots of people would say, it's an escape from hell. That's what's in the box. Well, at its heart, Christianity is God. God is the great prize of the gospel. In the simplest terms, what you get when you come to Jesus is, is God. You get Him, you get to know Him. And so let's put the question this way, what do you get when you get God? What do you actually get? Now, let's be clear, you want to think rightly about this. First and foremost, according to the Bible, God is the one who actually gets us. Uh, we are His creation, we're His redeemed people, if you're a Christian, so He gets us, we're His, but secondarily, it can, said, can be said, when you become a Christian, 
the thing that's held out is God. So, what do you get when you get God? Knowing the answer to that question is life-changing. It seriously changes everything. It brings a crystal clear clarity about why it's always worth following Jesus. It's the fuel that will keep you clinging to God, keep you holding on to Him when you understand the answer to this question. It's the energy that will cause you to grow as a Christian. It's our hope when this world tempts us away from God. It's, It's our hope when tragedy in the world rips everything away from us. What do you get when you get God? Well, open up Psalm 23, which was read for us there. And what you're going to see, first of all, is contentment. Verse 1, you get contentment. Have a look at verse 1, Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord... The God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the universe, he says, is my shepherd. See, up until this point in the book of Psalms, um, God has been called all sorts of things. He's been called king. He's been called the, the deliverer. More impersonally, he's been called rock and shield. And that's because that's who he is. He is the mighty one, the ruler over all, the one who in Psalm 2 laughs at the petty rebellion of the nations. He terrifies them in His wrath. In Psalm 8, He's the creator of everything, is who He's revealed to do. And then here in Psalm 23, David says, that one, the Almighty One, the Lord, is my shepherd. It's an incredibly intimate, personal metaphor. Notice this psalm is like a sheep's eye view of God. In it, we're pictured as sheep... And the Lord is pictured as the shepherd. But did you spot the outrageous benefit of being a sheep of this shepherd? He says, I lack nothing. Is there a stronger expression of contentment than that? To be able to say, I lack nothing. There's nothing I need, there's nothing I could want that I don't already have in this God. God is my shepherd. And so he says, I have it all. Now, verse 2 expands this picture of contentment. Have a look at verse 2. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still, he leads me beside quiet waters. So again, we're pictured as sheep and here in green fields, like luscious grass everywhere. It's like an all-you-can-eat sheep buffet, all the grass you could ever want. Now, remember, David's a shepherd, or he was a shepherd. He's an ex-shepherd, that's what he used to do. And so he's pretty big on his sheep imagery here in this psalm. It must be like his go-to thing. He was a shepherd, and so this is his favourite. You know how different preachers have different kind of go-to illustrations that they love? So Herdy, if you've been around long enough, you've probably heard that Herdy used to row surfboats. Yes, Herdy, he rode the surfboats, that's his illustration. Dave was in the army, and that's his thing that he goes to. He likes to talk about being in the army. Graham uh, seemed to be some sort of a minor criminal as a teenager, and so all of his stories about edgy stuff from his teenage years, uh, I think by the end of this sermon you'll probably be able to guess what my thing is. But anyway, we've all got a thing. David's big thing 
is he was a shepherd. And so the illustrations about sheep, we've lots of little details as there. Notice the detail in verse 2, the sheep lie down in green pastures. Sheep are a grazing animal. I'd learn a lot about sheep this week, right? But sheep, they walk around on their feet and they eat the grass and then when they're full and it's time to digest, that's when you lie down as a sheep. This is a content, stuffed, ready-to-digest sheep. This is Dad on Christmas Day after lunch, food coma on the couch, he's had a good day and now he's like stretched out on the couch in his food coma. This is a happy, full, fat, content sheep. We live in a world that's desperate for contentment, don't we? This is everywhere. This generation of people who are alive today, we are collectively the biggest consumers that our planet has ever seen. We eat more, spend more, experience more, do more. We're just always chasing the next thing, chasing contentment. And we say to ourselves, I would be happy if only whatever. I'd be happy if only I could move out of home and get my own house. I'd be happy if only I could change my career to this other thing. I'd be happy if only I could take that trip. I'd be happy if only I could unbox that new iPhone. But when you get that house or that job or that trip or that phone, it never satisfies. And so instead we head back to Instagram and check out what everyone else is doing because maybe they're onto something that I haven't got onto yet and maybe that's the thing that will make me happy. But it never satisfies. Millennia before Instagram, the prophet Jeremiah nailed our world's problem. He absolutely hit it on the head. Jeremiah 2, he's condemning God's people. They've rejected God and they've run after all sorts of inferior substitutes. And so Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says, My people have committed two sins. One, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And two, they've dug their own cisterns, their own water tanks, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two mistakes. Number one, God's people have rejected the spring of living water. Our contentment, our satisfaction, our happiness can only be found in this God. And God's people have rejected that one. And instead, they, like us, dig these broken cisterns, cracked water tanks where all the mud flows in and mixes and you're left with nothing. We reject the stream of all goodness and instead we dig our pathetic little holes. We put our trust in the next purchase or the next relationship or the next experience or whatever and we're left wondering, why does it feel so empty? The tragedy in Jeremiah is that the answer was always right there in front of them. Jeremiah says, return to the Lord, He is the one you need, He is the one, return to Him, repent, come back to this God, come to the God of Psalm 23 and then you'll be able to say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And so, what do you get when you get God? Well, number one, you get contentment. Here's the second thing, you find assurance Have a look at verse 3. It says, He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. Now, the word soul there in verse 3 
is a pretty broad word. I think we hear soul and we think the spiritual part of me, but I think it's particularly just talking about the inner me, all of me. He's saying all of me, my deep self is refreshed by the Lord. Now, you'll notice if you've got an NIV translation, 2011, it'll say, he refreshes my soul. The ESV says, he restores my soul. The NIV makes it sound like he's a a nice, refreshing drink. You go, ah, that was nice, that was satisfying. But I think the ESV is capturing it there. There's something bigger, something stronger going on here. The shepherd restores, revives our soul. He revives me, he restores me. He brings repentance. The second half of verse 3, he guides me along right paths. Verse 3 is assurance for wandering sheep. The the shepherd rescues us spiritually. He calls us back to repentance, which is really good news, isn't it? That's really good news because we're not good at being shepherds of our own souls. Our hearts are prone to wander, but we have a shepherd who watches over our souls. But did you notice one striking detail there in verse 3? Did, did you spot why? Why God does this? For His name's sake. That's a huge sentence. He does this for His name's sake. Now think about this for a second. Why does God save us as Christians? Why did He save us? Why did He rescue us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why does He put His Spirit in us so that we would live God's way and follow His commands? Because He loves us? Because He's full of goodness and and mercy? (laughs) Yes, absolutely yes, that's 100% the right answer. But the preeminent answer, the, the biggest answer is for His namesake, for His glory. If you can only give one answer, that's the answer you have to give. I want to help us see this a bit more clearly. Come over to Ezekiel 36 with me. You see this expanded here in Ezekiel 36. The context here in Ezekiel 36 is that God's people have been scattered out into the world in judgment. Uh, But the problem is, it's starting to make God look bad. Ezekiel 36, verse 20. Here it is, verse 20. It says, Wherever they, God's people, went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave His land. So you get what's going on here, God's people have been sent out into the world, scattered in judgment, and the rest of the world's looking on going, well, if that's God's people, they don't seem to be going very good, so He mustn't be a very good God. And so God says, I'm going to do something about this. Have a look, verse 21, I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they'd gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, where you've gone. I'm going to show the holiness of my name. He says it again and again. 
But look at what God's going to do about this. Verse 24, he says, For I'll take you out of the nations, I'll gather you back from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. This, is a new te- this finds its fulfilment in us, in the New Testament. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God's going to do this amazing work in his people. He's going to save them, cleanse them of their sin, restore their souls, and he's going to put their spirit in them, guide them along right paths. But it's for the sake of his name. That's why he does it. Now, we're going to think about why that's such incredibly good news in a moment. But first, let's deal with a possible objection that might come up to this. Is this egotistical of God? Is God thinking of himself a bit too highly here? Why is God making our salvation all about him, putting himself at the centre of everything? Is that egotistical of God? A while ago, I watched this Netflix documentary, uh, I said that word, weird, Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, uh, Michael Jordan and the 97 Chicago Bulls. It's really good. But anyway, in, 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 the, in the show, Michael Jordan says all this really um, full-on stuff about himself. Uh, he, he's always saying things like, I'm the best, I deserve to win, I'm the greatest player on the planet. He makes all these huge claims about himself. Is that egotistical of Jordan to say that? Is he thinking too highly of himself? Well, maybe, but it's, it's also just a statement of fact. It is true at the time. Is God egotistical to save a people for his glory? For God to act as if he's at the centre of the universe? Well, only if he's not the most important thing in the world. But he is. We're so used to hearing about ourselves and thinking of ourselves as being at the centre of the universe. Human life, the most valuable thing. But it's actually God. God stands alone. He's the eternal creator and sustainer of all things. We're just his creatures. He is preeminently glorious. He's the most valuable thing in the world. And so it's perfectly right for God to work for his glory. He deserves it. It would actually be wrong of God to put something else as the center. God is not an idolater, He won't give His glory to anyone or anything else. But here's why that's good news for us. Think about this for a second. When it comes to our salvation in Christ and our perseverance in Him, God has skin in the game. It's not just up to us. God is at work in me and in you for the sake of His holy name. And because of that, He won't fail, which is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And come back to Michael Jordan for a second. I play basketball at Terrigal Stadium, men's C grade. Translation means we're not very good, right? Uh, But imagine if 
Michael Jordan came along, 97 Jordan, and he was like, I'm going to give you some tips to how to make your team better. It'd be nice to get some tips from Jordan, that might make us better. But imagine for a second instead, he came and said, hey, I'm going to join your team. I'm going to join your men's C-grade team. And so suddenly his reputation is on the line. A win for us is a win for Jordan. A loss for us is a disgrace for Jordan. He's got skin in the game and he's joined my team to play for us. Friends, if you're a Christian, the almighty sovereign ruler of the universe has tied his glory to you. Your salvation, your perseverance in the faith are part of his eternal plan for glory. And so, you can live the Christian life now with a great and wonderful assurance. God will work in us to keep us and grow us to be more and more like Him, for His name's sake. That's good news, isn't it? What do you get when you get God? Number one, you get contentment. Number two, you get assurance. Number three, we find security. Come back to Psalm 23. Verse 4, security. He says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, we think of valleys as a nice place where you could go take some pictures, go sightseeing, it's a, you know, pretty rolling hills or whatever. But in David's context, valleys were always bad news. It was the image of a bad place that you want to avoid. For sheep, it's where the predators hung out and they want to eat you, so that's bad. If you're a human, it's where dodgy people could hide in waiting, and so you'd have robbers or a foreign army. <clears throat> it's, it's where teenage Graham would hang out, right? It's a bad place, you don't want to get jumped by him. In modern terms, it's like saying, though I walk through the darkest alley in the dodgy part of Gosford really late at night, still I fear no evil. Now, again, you might have noticed, uh, in fact, uh, as Laura read it, you'll notice a little difference there uh, in the translations. The 2011 NIV says, the darkest valley. The ESV translation of the Bible has the valley of the shadow of death. It's the Coolio Gangster's Paradise Paradise translation. Um, Those are both great attempts to translate the same Hebrew sentence into English. Uh, It's just a little bit ambiguous, so you could go either way on it. Uh, but that phrase, the, the darkest valley, or the valley of the shadow of death, it's used a bunch of times in the Bible, and often it's clearly talking about death. For example, Job 38, verse 17, you see it in its context there, and you can see that the writer is talking about particularly death. <clears throat> the simplest way to think about it is this. With God as our shepherd, we have nothing to fear in any dark valley especially the darkest valley of all, death, which is, I think, what David has in view here. Now, here in safe, western, middle-class Australia, I think sometimes death can feel like a really foreign concept to us. I think we live with this weird dualism where, on the one hand, we say, death is inevitable, it happens to all of us, the only sure thing in life is death and taxes and we make that joke, yet at at the same time we kind of say to ourselves, but not really me quite yet, not for a long time, I don't have to think about that right now, probably not, maybe they'll cure death by the time I get there, it's not going to happen to me and we kind of tell ourselves that, yes, it's inevitable, 
but not really. It's not, not, not yet, not soon. But death has this habit of intruding. It breaks in, sometimes abruptly. And it reminds us of our mortality. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're terrified of death. I reckon this year, coronavirus has shown us how much we in the West fear death. For lots of people, older people, but also younger people, I've noticed, coronavirus, particularly at the start, seemed like this unstoppable force, this thing that actually could kill me. There's no vaccine for it and there's no way to stop it spreading and and lots of people are really afraid. It brought this unfamiliar feeling of vulnerability. I'm mortal. I really could die. 1% chance if I got it, but that's, that's, that's still not a very high percentage, but it's still 1%. And people were scared. Now, for David, he was a man who, who was accustomed to death. He lived in the shadow of death all of his life. For much of his life, he was a fugitive running from Saul. He was a f- chased, <laughs> he, he feared for his life, rightly. Death was this shadow that hung over him. But here in Psalm 23, verse 4, he can say, though I walk through the darkest valley, death itself, still I fear no evil, because you, God, are with me. Now notice in verse 4, the language turns from he, he, he leads, he guides to you, you, God, are with me. It's personal language. Your rod is with me. The rod was the weapon that the shepherds would club stuff with to fight off animals or whatever. It means protection for David. Your protection is with me. Your staff is with me. This is the shepherd's crook thing they'd steer the flock with. It meant control. God's control was over this for David. You are with me, God. And so I don't need to fear. When you get God, you get security. You find one who you can trust in any and every season. How much more for us today, as Christians, this side of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate shepherd in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who says in John 10, you heard it read just before, I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus tasted death for us. He went to the cross. He died in our place. The good shepherd becomes the sacrificial lamb. And so he says, we can have life, life to the full. Eternal life is what he's talking about. And so, yes, one day, all of us, our bodies will die, it'll it'll waste and we'll die. But if you're in Christ, you'll live forever. This is the best news in the world, isn't it? There's nothing better than that. The ultimate enemy has been defeated. The sting of death is gone. Lots of people fear dying alone. I've talked a lot about death tonight, but this is our passage. Lots of people fear dying alone. The thought of finding yourself alone on your deathbed, wherever that is, is a scary thought. And people find comfort in the idea that on your deathbed, you might be surrounded by loved ones in those last moments. But here's the thing, no matter who comes to your side at death, when death finally comes, 
they can't come with you. You do have to do that last bit alone. Unless, unless Jesus is your shepherd. Because even in death, he walks that valley with you out the other side to the resurrection. He walks with you through the darkest valley. And so Christians of all people can say, even though I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you, my shepherd God, are with me. Amen? That's good news. Right, we've seen some wonderful things in this psalm already. When you get God, you get one, contentment, two, assurance, three, security. And already that is so, so good. Such good news here in front of us already. But we haven't yet touched properly on the greatest thing of all. Here it is. When you get God, the best thing you get is God Himself. It's a bit of a weird sentence, but trust me, this is huge. Have a look at verse 5. It seems like the metaphor moves from shepherding and sheep to a feast. We've passed through the valley of the shadow of death and now we're at a feast. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Verse 4 is a picture of threat and evil and enemies. Verse 5 is a picture of safety and victory. Yeah, the enemies are there, but they're subdued. They're now at the feast as ones who have been dealt with. This is a victory feast. The table is set with food, the cup is overflowing, the head is anointed with oil. I have to make up my head to preach in front of a camera, I don't need any more oil on it because it's too bright for the camera. Uh, But apparently oil for the head's a good thing in a hosting context back then, it's what you do to spoil a dinner party guest. Verse 5 though is full of all this imagery of abundance and safety, but what makes this feast so good? Well, it's who we enjoy it with. Verse 6, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here David, just, he ditches all the metaphors and he just says, here's the best thing, God's goodness and his love will chase me all of my days. It's actively pursuing him wherever he goes, like this unceasing goodness that follows him because he's with God. The best bit is he's in the house of the Lord forever. I think for David, this is the ideal picture of life now on earth with God, but I think this finds its ultimate destination, its ultimate expression in its fullness in heaven, at God's table, in relationship with Him, in His presence. When you get God... You get the best thing in the world. You get God Himself. His gifts are wonderful. Contentment, assurance, security, they're all wonderful, good things, but they're just byproducts of the best thing. It's God Himself. Because um, I'm one of the pastors here at EV Night, I do lots of uh, wedding sermons. I marry a whole bunch of you guys. Hello, everyone that I married. Um, I've only got four wedding sermons, uh, but I've got, even worse, I've only got one intro. Right? I need to apologise to all of you for that, don't I? Anyway, uh, what I do is I ask people a bunch of questions, and I get them to answer some questions, shoot it into me, and I turn it into a kind of an intro for their wedding sermon. 
And one of the questions I ask is, what are you looking forward to about marriage? And people say all sorts of things. People say practical things. Uh, not having to drive home at the end of the night is a big one. People are like, oh, I'm so sick of driving home after we hang out. I just want to stay here. Building a house together, serving God together, all sorts of things. But almost always people say this, just being with them. That's what I'm looking forward to, is just being with them. The great prize of marriage is the person themselves. You get to hang out with them. You get to be with them. The great prize of Christianity is God Himself. We are His and He is ours. We get to be with our God friends in this life now, but so much more the life to come into eternity. Is what we saw in Psalm 16 this week. If you're in a growth group with us and you read Psalm 16 this week, it's the same thing, right? I wanted to change to preach to Psalm 16. I love that passage so much. But in it, King David, he, he's the king, right? He is the king. He's the guy who's got it all. But he says in Psalm 16, verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Verse 5, he says, Lord, you alone are my portion. You're my bit. You're all that I need. My cup you make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. If you have God, you have everything. He's all the good that we need. The greatest treasure. And in the Lord Jesus, it is ours. In Christ, you can approach God not just approach Him, you can call God Father and be in His presence for all eternity. In Jesus, we get God. And so we really do have everything we need. And so we can say along with David, truly, I lack nothing because I already have it all. Now, how does this change life now? What does this mean for us in the day-to-day of life now? I think it's actually huge. I think if you understand this, it changes everything. I'm going to finish with three things to leave us to think about with, though. We have contentment, assurance, security, God Himself. And so, number one, we can endure suffering now. There's so much that we can lose in the valleys of this life, isn't there? You can lose a lot. Your hopes and expectations for the future often can really disappoint. Relationships can break down and it leaves you with all sorts of grief and serious disappointment. I know many of you right now are in in the grip of anxiety and depression. It can feel suffocating. Loneliness can be this thing that just hangs and drones away in the background and won't ever go away. Death itself is the darkest valley. Some, we might fear it for the future, but often we're left here grieving the ones that we've lost that have gone through that valley ahead of us as well. We get left behind in our grief. Now, all those things are realities in a broken world. There's no promise that as Christians we're going to be spared those sorts of pains. But in Christ the Good Shepherd, there are treasures 
which that suffering cannot take away from us. It can't. Knowing God doesn't take away the pain in this life. It doesn't stop there being hard things and pain, but it brings blessing that cannot be touched by that pain. So loneliness doesn't need to strip away my contentment because the Lord is my shepherd. Depression and anxiety cannot take away my assurance because the Lord is my shepherd. Cancer or even death itself will not take away my security because the Lord is my shepherd. And so we can, still we can say, come what may, I lack nothing. Because I have God. Number two, we can obey God now without fear of missing out. One of Satan's lies that he whispers to us is following God means missing out. Missing out on that pleasure. It's the weekend. We, we could be at the pub kicking up our feet, having a good time right now, but we're here. How come I have to miss out on that pleasure that they out there in the world enjoy and I miss out? We might be missing out on all sorts of big life experiences that others around us are having. Everyone else around me is is getting married, but all the the options at church aren't going anywhere for me right now and it doesn't seem to be working here, but at work, that guy or that girl, they're actually really nice and they like me and I like them and they're not a Christian, what if I miss out? If if we can really say, along with David, the Lord is my shepherd and so I lack nothing, apart from you I have no good thing, then friends, you will never miss out. If this is really true, you will never miss out. Even as we sacrifice and do genuinely hard things to follow our Lord, you'll never be missing out because you already have it all. If you believe this, if this is true and you live like that's the case, it'll change your life. Third and finally, we can live dangerously now. Having everything in Christ means that you can take risks now and that's okay. Risks for the gospel. We can afford to be generous with our money even when we don't have much even if that feels scary, I have everything in Christ. I don't need my money to be the thing that makes me feel secure and safe. And so you can take risks with, with your money. You can take risks with your life. You can grab your life and up and move it to some other place in the world so that people in that place can hear about Jesus. We heard from the Galeas last week. Um, it was an awesome time as we heard from them Humanly speaking, that family is risking a lot to grab their lives and up and move to Malta so that people in that place can hear about God. I talked to them on Monday and the reason they can feel like they can do it is they say, because in Christ we have it all, so we really can take risks. Now, you should know missionaries, the Galeas, they're not these crazy superheroes, right? I think sometimes we look at people like that and we say, well, that's pretty cool for them, but I could never live life like that and do scary things for the gospel. But they're just normal people. They're people like you and me, um, but they get this, in Christ we have everything. And so we can lose it all for the gospel. 
Now, I don't know what that might look like for you in your context to live dangerously for the Gospel, but if you're following the Good Shepherd, there's such a great freedom here. You really do already have it all. You can live dangerously now because you already have that which you cannot lose. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we praise you for all the wonderful treasures that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would find our contentment in you, our assurance and our security in you. But Father, we pray that that you yourself would be the biggest treasure in our lives. We pray that you would be our source of joy and peace and happiness. We pray that it would be our joy now in this life and, and we thank you that we can enjoy that into all eternity with you, our great treasure. Amen.